1: I'm April Voki, and you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is made possible by the wonderful people at Hatch Outdoors. Hatch reels are made in Vista, California, and are entirely machined from barstock aluminum. The famed Hatch synthetic multi-disc drag system is sealed, requiring no lubrication or extra maintenance. Ranging in weight sizes from 0 to 16, Hatch has anglers all across the globe taken care of. Check out their website at hatchoutdoors.com. Brian Niska has done a lot in his 45 years. A Federation of Flyfishers Mastercaster and THCI certified instructor, he is the creator of the metal detector series from the Pierway Rod Company. In 2000, he started Whistler Flyfishing, a school, shop, and outfitting company that catered to everyone, particularly the younger generation of flyfishers who had for so long been ignored. Today, Brian and his wife Lizzie run Skeenis Bay Lodge in Terrace, BC. In this episode, Brian and I discuss 2018 salmon migration, the Keep 'em Wet movement, and guide responsibility.
2: I was actually born in New Westminster, St. Mary's Hospital, and I grew up in Coquitlam and Port Coquitlam.
3: How did you end up in Whistler?
2: I wanted to go away and teach skiing, so I ended up at Silver Star in Vernon. And I was starting to guide fishing as well. And so I ended up taking a year off of skiing, going to Chile, guiding fly fishing down there. Came back after that and had friends in Whistler and went, typical Whistler story, (laughs) went there to visit (laughs) friends and ended up staying for 14 years.
3: That's obviously not how your fishing passion started. I would assume it was in the lower mainland?
2: First fishing memory would be going to Okanagan Lake with my family, probably being four years old, and uh, I distinctly, there's there's actually a picture of it in my cabin, but distinctly remember catching the first fish was a, a rainbow trout while we were fishing for kokanee, which at, at the time everyone thought was kind of weird, but they're good memories. Uh, I think that place where we used to stay, the little cabins there, is, is now some big fancy resort, but that's kind of how it goes in the Okanagan.
3: And you just fell in love with fishing and that was that? Yeah, I think
2: I remember being pretty infatuated with it. My dad had uh, all these kind of old fishing magazines from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and I had a big collection of them. I used to always dig through when I was supposed to be doing, homework and stuff.
3: Did you fish the lower mainland steelhead streams, or were you more of a salmon guy, or were you, were you a trout fisherman?
2: You know, interior lakes were kind of my, my, my thing at first, but when we moved to Poco when I was 13, the Bovo Slough I had pretty good fishing, and I used to go down there all the time. The, the cool kids would go down and party at the end of the dike, and I'd ride my bike down the other side and go fish for cutthroat. And
3: you weren't one of the cool kids?
2: It's far from it.
3: I totally think of you as being one of the cool kids. No. Because we are going to talk about that. You can't escape your past on here. Uh, <laughs> okay, so walk me through high school. What were you like in school? A fishing geek, and not a particularly great student. Okay, so you weren't very studious. No. Were you skipping school to go fishing?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say skipping school to go fishing, but I think my head was elsewhere.
3: So no college, just no. you were like, I'm out of here, I'm done my school, and now I'm going to be a ski bum?
2: Technically, I, I didn't actually graduate. So yeah, anyways, wanted to be a ski bum, but I was, thought that the life for me would be teaching golf in the summer. Fish guiding wasn't really on my radar. But then when I was first in Whistler, I was guiding a little bit because it was something I had already done right? Because being in Chile and stuff. But I thought, you know, this is life, teach skiing in the winter and teach golf in the summer. But two things, golf is hard. And teaching golfing, at least from my perspective, (laughs) you know, standing at the range next to someone who's never going to get it was not nearly as exciting as guiding fishing. And just the golf course, I like golfing, but the the golf course itself kind of has, you know, especially like a fancy golf course has, you know, some of the stuff around it's not not really what I would be all about.
3: Fair enough. Where did the Chile experience come into play? How old were you? Mm,
2: I don't know. I, I, it's a c- good question. Early twenties, okay. twenty-two or twenty-three, I think.
3: Did you have any crazy life-changing experiences there?
2: I, I went to Chile at kind of an interesting time because you know this whole fly fishing travel thing was really just starting to to kick, and and at that time, couples, women w- weren't really that common. But the lodge I worked for in Chile was run by a gentleman named. Uh, Jim Repine, they used to call him Mr. Alaska. Unfortunately, I believe he passed away a few years ago. He went down there and uh, started a lodge on the Fudalafu River, and he would only do four clients at a time. He liked to have couples. He had this really cool old uh, farmhouse that's on the river. I think it's still going. I think uh, another company runs it now, but they, they did have a volcano erupt near there that I think put a bit of a hitch in things. But you know, at that time... If you wanted to send a message home, I had to ride the horse two hours, use a really expensive phone that you can only talk one way on. And uh, yeah, it just, for me being that remote at that time in my life, I I just, I wasn't really keen to repeat it. I was pretty happy to come home. It was a good experience, but, (laughs) and I I do distinctly remember the stars in the Southern Hemisphere and to be that remote. I mean, at that time, I don't know if it's still like it now, but at that time, you know, his lodge was, like I said, a two-hour horseback ride from town. We were the only people in, you know, in that valley who had a motorized vehicle. Everyone else had ox carts and horses. So, it was a really neat experience. But it was kind of one of those things like one and done for me. Maybe maybe at some point I'll go back as a client. But yeah, that was that was like for me at least a long five months.
3: That's when you had your moment of I'm going to teach golf and skiing at the same time. No, like I, came,
2: I came back and ended up in Whistler, and I was like, well, Whistler's a lot of fun. You know, it, it was a good place to. Good place to live, good place to work, but you can only teach skiing for, you know, half the year. So I had to figure something out for the other and golf just seemed to make sense. But yeah, fishing kind of got in the way. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a lot of really great fishing guys that come out of Whistler, mm-hmm. I, worked with a lot of them myself, but, you know, all throughout BC, there's a lot of folks who got their start in Whistler.
3: Yeah, notice noticed that.
2: Oh yeah, heaps. And, and part of that is the challenge of, you know, you don't have particularly easy fishing anywhere. And because of the nature of of where you're at, you know you're just around two thousand feet above sea level, but a lot of your fishing takes place down in Squamish, close to sea level. And you know, in the winter, you get a lot of snow, and then you know, spring can be thirty degrees Celsius or it can be minus five. You know, it's it's a real mix. So it's a lot of learning how to pay attention to what's happening in the mountains to understand what you need to be doing in the valley bottom.
3: You don't think it's because it's winter steelhead and they're just a totally. Different beast.
2: Well, well sure. Win- winter steelhead, like spring fishing on the Squamish rivers. There's not a ton of fish. There's a lot of great water. Uh, I won't say there's not a ton of people because at times it can be busy. But you know, for the most part, there's a lot of water to go around. But the bulk of the guiding that takes place there isn't for steelhead. It's it's trout fishing and in, in some of the rivers and trout fishing in the lakes. It's a lot of taking out beginners. There, there's a little bit of salmon opportunity down in Squamish, but it's it's a at least for a lot of the companies that that are up there, it's a lot of lake fishing. We we tended to, to focus more on the rivers, but but there's, you know, I'd say probably three-quarters of the fishing in Whistler would be lake fishing.
3: But then you decided you were going to start a fly shop?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was just like a sort of a watershed moment of this is what I'm going to do. I think it just kind of happened. I think, I you know, we started with having the guide company and then, you know, you're selling gear and then the next thing, you know you're an idiot and you decide you want bricks and mortar <laughs> but
3: oh, so the guiding was first the shop came later
2: that's right actually before the guiding there was teaching
3: <gasps> yeah because so, you are you have your cci and your th there right yeah you're highly decorated are you a master caster
2: <laughs> yeah but the first guiding i did in whistler wasn't For myself, I worked for someone else, right?
3: Oh, okay, right.
2: And what I realized at the time is that, gosh, we're taking these people out, putting them in float tubes, dragging them around the lake. They catch some fish, they're happy. But what they really want to do is learn how to cast, single-hand cast. So that's how the fly fishing school started.
3: Okay. So the fly fishing school
2: came first, then the guiding, then the shop. You know, eventually when we got into spay, which was shortly thereafter... I taught an awful lot of spay casting lessons on the grass at the elementary school in Whistler, and also at the off the docks on the lakes there.
3: You just your branding was so it was so distinctive, and you guys were like the new age, cutting edge. Were you wearing flat brims? I think you were wearing flat brims at the time, and then you had like the funky ass logo, and you were appealing to a totally different market than the rest of the industry was. Are you aware of that? Mm-hmm
2: uh maybe back then it was unique but i don't think it's really that unique now
3: no it's not now but that's why it's so much more unique looking at it now you were way way ahead of things and you were really criticized for it i've always thought about that about how far ahead of the game you were and the criticism that followed but all for just being a little bit extra savvy do you have any thoughts on that
2: i think you know the <laughs> criticism's always pretty entertaining <laughs> that's it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. And I, and I think like if if people are talking about you regardless of what they're saying then that's you know that that's their own that, that that's their own issue, right? Like you you should never let it bother you regardless of uh, whether it's fishing related or otherwise.
3: You've come so far over the years and that's one one of my big reasons for wanting you on the show is to me personally you're just a major inspiration. Because I've always looked at you and watched how you were so ahead of the game when it came to marketing and and you always stood true to your beliefs and you had so many people who could didn't understand maybe who you were or what your brand was but you just you didn't stop and you just stayed who you are and you grew up really and and now here we are in Skeena Spade and we're about to talk about some wonderful things that you're doing for the fisheries moving forward um so let's get back to your timeline
2: yeah you bet so I uh Gosh, I spent 14 years in Whistler, and then I think I I mentioned before that a lot of our fishing took place in Squamish. So we were picking clients up in Whistler, taking them to Squamish to go fishing. Ooh, what's the time? It's about 45 minutes. Okay. But, you know, traffic and weather. And once again, you're going from 2,000 foot elevation down close to sea level, could be minus five in Whistler, plus two in Squamish. That's not always a fun drive. The great thing about Whistler is obviously, you know, the clients are already there. Right, you don't need to attract people specifically to there, so it's a great place to meet clients. But then the ones that are really good, and I'll tell you, like over the years, we—I I firmly believe we have the best clients. And by best, I mean people that get it, people that just like to fish, right? Yeah. And I've become—I think I've always been pretty good at just over the phone. It's—it's kind of like when, when back to the ski thing. You can tell, by the way, someone carries their skis whether or not they can ski right, and it 's kind of like you talk to someone on the phone and they 're interested in a guided trip, and you don 't even have to say anything they 'll tell you. you you figure it okay well i don 't really want to take this person out, but you, you know you can really tell the good ones, and over time, you know you do your very best to retain the the good folks and the next level for us after that was, hey, instead of just like you're here for a week and we take you fishing once why don't you come here specifically for fishing and maybe you can do some other activities. And that's when that pivot towards Squamish happened, because why would you want to stay in Whistler and drive to Squamish every day when you can stay in Squamish and fish in Squamish, which is great. So that was sort of the next step for me to move to Squamish. And I spent four years there and I really love Squamish. And when we started to, I mean, I, you know, probably since like maybe 98 or something, I was coming up to Skeena a lot and, you know so i 'd essentially be spending a month or two up here, but then we Lizzie and I started to really split our time we 'd be here from late june mid June till you know early December up in Terrace and the rest of the time in squamish when it sounds great, but it 's a lot of work as you know to live in two different places
3: but you 're jumping ahead. you bought a lodge in between all this
2: you're right in between there the lodge came along we didn 't like to live in Terrace without the lodge. So basically, when we're back in Squamish, going back and forth, eventually you're like, okay, well, you know, be nice to, to not have to move twice a year. That's how we ended up in Terrace. And, and the lodge itself was an interesting story, but, you know, it, it's sort of, I will not want to say it spiraled out of control, but it evolved from what originally we thought. Originally, we were kind of thinking it would be like a very small guide thing. And, you know, now it's, it's obviously, you know, I don't do a lot of guiding anymore. I do a lot of like picking up the dog poo and like, watering the grass <laughs> and picking people up at the airport and pretending I can be a plumber or trying to like learn about electricity stuff like that. So, so basically, how uh, Skeena Bay came to be is I was so, okay. So you know, initially you have the fly fishing school, then you have the guide company, then you do the, the silly thing and have the store. <laughs> but then the next thing, which was the good stuff, was okay. I've got all these great clients let's go to some other places where the fishing is really good. So I was doing a lot of hosted travel. I was probably doing seven to eight weeks of hosted travel a year. And part of that rotation was uh, here in Terrace, a place called Z-Boat Lodge. Brad and Kim were the really lovely folks that ran that place. And one of my really clients slash friends was a gentleman named Malcolm Wood. And he was up on a trip and Brad was looking to retire and was willing to sell his business. And... In about seven and a half, maybe 10 minutes of friendly negotiation in the boat during lunchtime, they wrote out a deal on the back of the napkin, and and Malcolm agreed to buy it from him. And he looked at me and said, hey, uh, you know, can you help me with this? And Brad looked at me and said, hey, will you help him with this? And I said, yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that's how this thing came to be.
3: Now, were you with Lizzie at that point?
2: Mm, Good question. I think I... That was a couple months before I met Lizzie, yeah.
3: Because Lizzie is a fly fisher as well. That's right. Some people may recognize her Instagram handle. She, she is fishing. fishing. Yeah, that's amazing. How did you guys meet?
2: Uh, I had a fly fishing film tour thing. This is
3: fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so then you guys decide you're going to run this lodge. And it sure didn't look like this when you moved in.
2: No, this lodge has a really interesting history. Um, it was family run for 27 years before we came along. The Ruby family, Dieter and Ushi and, and their son Alex and his wife Michelle ran the place. They had this property for 27 years and their story was pretty, pretty neat too, at least the way I understand it and do my best to not butcher it too much. But Dieter would come over here fishing because everybody in Germany wants to come to Canada and and catch a big fish and lo and behold, his first salmon caught in the Skeena was I think 68 pounds, <laughs> you know, welcome to Terrace and he said, hey, this is the place for me and I uh, I think he had a family business and went back in Germany and set himself up to come back here and bought this piece of property and got himself a booking agent and got himself some clients and I think that I remember the way he told me the story was that you know he didn't know if the water around here was any good but you know he took the clients out there and they they were bar fishing at the time set them all up and nothing happened for about half an hour and he's kind of nervous and all of a sudden the the rods started to go and you know twenty seven years of. Making memories—that's what they did, and uh, really, really nice people. We actually got to to live on the property for their last summer of of operation, so that was a, a really neat kind of carryover, I guess you'd say, and nice transition for us. And oh, oh, you know, our business model is a little different. For starters, everything we do is catch and release. And uh, obviously fly fishing, they did a little bit of fly fishing, but it was predominantly bar fishing.
3: And you guys have done a major renovation in here.
2: It's a work in progress. I don't think you're ever really done, but but yeah, we initially we did the cabins, and we've we talked about knocking down the lodge building and starting from scratch and building a big stupid Whistler building. But you know, you got 27 years of fishing memories. There's a lot of soul in that building. and It's really unique. So instead, we've we we worked with a really great designer, Deb Wardell from North Vancouver, and. She made it so you couldn't tell what parts we changed and what was here originally, and also made the cabins look awesome and basically uh, over time, it just sort of evolves and now our our big thing is probably at least this summer is is landscaping, so doing the veggie garden and doing some of the tweaks around the property. A couple of years ago, we put in a, a golf course.
3: You guys just have a really different, unique environment. I mean, it's got a real family feel. You obviously have got two kids. The guides are, are friends both on and off the water. Uh, the setup is perfect. I mean, the home pool's got great fishing. The, I can feel the history from from the family before. I just think it's a really unique spot.
2: Yeah, you know we're we're really happy with it, and uh, the the guests that like it seem to like it a lot, and we we do get a lot of repeat clientele. I mean, we got folks who, who've come here three three different times in twelve months, which you know that's pretty much all you could ever ask. And when it comes to the clients, once again, you know we tend to attract people who like to fish. We I tend to try and dissuade the folks that are really dependent on catching a lot of fish to you know as a measure of success I don't think fishing the lower skein is about numbers I think it's all about fish quality and uh, we got a few things going for us one is obviously proximity to the ocean you know all those fabled steelhead rivers that everybody wants to go to like the Kisbyogs the Babine the Susta the Bulkley, the Maurice those fish got to swim by here first mm-hmm. and there's a ton of water and when you hook a really good fish in that big river right here you really do get the best of it so I think it's all about potential and you know the folks that can can groove with that tend to really like it a lot and what i love about our lodge is to me at least it's authentic you know it's not a pretentious place Mm-mm. you know we get we get people from all walks of life i get folks coming in on private jets and i got guys who uh, who work really hard to to manage the time here and i've got folks that you know, they do three weeks with us, and I've got people that, like, actually, our, our good guy, John Case, he uh, he came in last night. I picked him up at, his flight was late, I picked him up at about 12.30 at, at YXT at Terrace Airport, and uh, he fished all day today, and the guy took him straight to the airport, and he flew home, so, <laughs> yeah, and he drove up from Seattle, so that's, you know, that's the type of person that we like having around, people who just like to fish.
3: Okay, so the elephant in the room for me is obviously this Chinook closure, and we are in July right now. It's going to be August soon, uh, two thousand eighteen. What is going on, Brian?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's a complicated one. It's uh, it, it's frustrating on a lot of different levels. I guess for those that don't understand the situation, I I, I could uh, give you the background that you know f- we're kind of a I w- would hope at the low end of the the return cycle for Chinook. Um, and then it's not specific to the Skeena. I think that any, everywhere from the, the Aleutians down to California has experienced lower than normal runs at some point in the last decade.
3: What is a lower to normal run on this river?
2: Well, it, kind of the new norm seems to be like 50,000 fish, something like that. Last year, uh, I think 35,000 was what, what DFO said we had. And, and obviously, we'd love to have twice that many. And there's been times in fairly recent history where the number was closer to 100,000 fish.
3: We're just talking Chinook right now. We're talking
2: Chinook, yeah, Chinooks. And you know the, the thing about Skeena Chinook is you know, they come from a variety of sources, but there's some rivers that are you know key components of the overall run. So an example of that would be the Kalem, right? Right. Uh, another example could be the, the fish that are going up to the Maurice, east, and run timing is very different. And how we got here this year... Because last year we did, we did have a Chinook fishery and, and a fishery where people were allowed to take fish. It just started a little later than normal. And this year's run is actually much larger than last year's. However, sockeye was initially forecast to be very, very low. I believe somewhere around 400,000 fish. And at that point, DFO and, and you know, First Nations as well weren't comfortable targeting sockeye given the low abundance that was forecast. So instead, uh, the focus was towards Chinook as a FSC fishery. And in order to ensure that, uh, you know, there would be enough Chinook for First Nations, you know, some cuts had to be made. And DFO, through the Sport Fish Advisory Board process, sort of determined that the way they were going to do this was on, I think it was May 8th, when the river was really, really high and full of logs and muddy and no one was fishing anyways they they closed the closed the Skeena at all fishing. Meanwhile it was business as usual in the ocean. Now, once we got into June, and I understand too that what that did is it just changed fishing pressure, we just redistributed it. People went to the ocean instead of fishing in the river. They did put some, you know, high to I think the cut limits in half and there was a period where the fishery at the you near know, the mouth of the Nass and the Skeena was a non-retention fishery but you know essentially everybody contributed to the conservation effort however you know the marine fisheries kept going but they completely closed access to the fishery in the river and why this is frustrating is there was a very strong argument for a catch and release fishery you know the Skina Angling Guides Association had put through a proposal that would see exploitation well under 300 fish, with, with three catch and release, closer to 100 actually. Um, this same proposal made suggestions of conservation-based tackle restrictions, such as bait bans, that would have helped bring that number down. Talked about having areas where people couldn't fish from boats to give fish some sanctuary. Talked about having areas where there would be no sport fishing to uh, ensure that uh, you know First Nations could carry out FSC fisheries without any concern of interruption it was a very good document. Dustin, who's the, the, the chairman for the Skeen Angling Guides Association, had put that together. And unfortunately, it didn't get widespread support from things like BC Wildlife Federation, who would ra- it would seem, would rather see the river closed and have people not fishing than, you know, endorse this really progressive idea of, hey, let's go fishing, but find a way to limit our impact. And there's two things that are really bad about that. The first is by taking anglers off the water, you really send a a poor message to anybody who wants to go fishing that, Hey, you're doing something wrong. So, you know, for those of us, and there's a lot of us that are in the tourism industry, regardless of, you know, whether it's someone who has a a campground or hotel or their fishing guide, or they have a tackle shop, it's not, Hey, it's not just schema, right? Like that bad press gives people who are considering coming to BC anywhere to go fishing this idea that, Hey, You know, there's no fishing taking place here. So that that's the first thing. Second thing is for the folks that choose to live here. And man, everybody in Terrace is into fishing. So, you know, in the summer it's everyone's all about whether they're fly fishing or bar fishing, just getting out on the river. And the cool thing about the river fishery, regardless of whether you can keep fish or let them go, is it's the easiest fishery to access. You know, you you want to take your kids fishing, you go bar fishing, right? Keeping the ocean open. Okay, well, now you need a boat or
3: Mm, a friend with a boat or a charter.
2: You know, it's it's not really for like the super casual angler, whereas the river offers that opportunity. So I would say to you that the way that DFO distributed the conservation effort this year wasn't fair. And hopefully moving forward, uh, you know, they'll be a little bit more aware. I mean, on a per fish basis. This is the fishery that generates the most economic impact, meaning for a guided angler who comes here, like, let's say a guided fly fisherman coming to catch a Chinook, they're going to fish three days. This is by the numbers, three days to land one fish, okay?
3: Yeah, now, sounds right.
2: <laughs> so you got uh, catch-release mortality that's, uh, let's say 10%. 10% is pretty generous. It's probably closer to five. So you think about that for a second. Those folks are paying 1200 bucks a day to go fishing, you know, they need to. Catch and release ten to have the chance of potentially killing one, you know. Now you're generating thirty five thousand dollars worth of economic input per per dead chinook. There's no other fishery that can match that. So, you know, this closure has a ripple effect. It goes well beyond the tackle shop, well beyond the the fishing lodge. You know, it's it's at the gas station, the grocery store. It's everywhere. The the big thing also with the chinook fishery is. If you look at actual exploitation level numbers, actual exploitation numbers um, by DFO's own own estimates, there's way more Skeena Chinook being killed in Haida Gwaii and uh, you know the sport fishery around Prince Rupert than even with a full kill fishery in the river. So, for them to take such drastic measures in the river. But meanwhile, just kind of cut limits in the ocean, and then you can go and check out some of the lodges on Haida Gwaii on their websites and their fishing reports, and they're talking about their guests catching and releasing huge numbers of fish. You know that's probably not the best use of the resource, and it's certainly not the most fair use of the resource. And I think this year is going to be a, a big wake-up call for for people about how I don't want to use a c-word, but how unfair <laughs> DFO's sport fish advisory. Board process is and how there is a total lack of representation from the local business community as well as the tourism sector.
3: What's the C word? Corruption. Oh.
2: As far as uh, that, that Chinook story goes and, and the beginning of it with the low sockeye forecast, which was the trigger for everything, you know, as of today, that sockeye forecast for the skein is up to 1.4 million. They started out at 400,000, so gosh, they're only off by a million. I kind of feel dfo i kind of feel like my toddler could do a better job of picking these numbers now i get what they're going to say they're going to say oh well the reason we have all these more guys because we made all these great decisions and all these great cuts and you know look look at how good we are and and now we have all these extra fish but the reality is you also got to look at the harm that they've done to the reputation of bc as a whole from a fishing destination standpoint so when you got to You've got a, an angler sitting there in London, England, trying to figure out where he's going to go fishing next year, and he's looking at Russia, he's looking at Norway, um, maybe Iceland, BC. Oh, I can't go to BC. I mean, they're, they're fisheries. They just close them, and I make all these plans, and I can't go fishing. So I think that you know, tourism as an industry is a great thing. I mean, we, we're basically selling experiences. People come over here, they leave with experiences, they bring you know money from a different economy, they leave it here, it creates lots of jobs. Uh, these businesses tend to not be super profitable. So a lot of the money gets left in the community. And, you know, at at the end of the day, the the cool thing that we're doing is we're giving people a reason to care about wild fish and the importance of having clean water and and understanding why we want to have, you know, an environment that enables fish and wildlife to coexist and And if we can be a small part of that and participate in a way that, you know, isn't providing exploitation on a level that's detriment to the overall, you know, species that are there, then, hey, that's a good thing. So I I sleep pretty good at night as a fishing guide, even though a lot of people I know will, will say that fishing guides are essentially, you know, pimps of the resource. And perhaps they are, but at the same time, too, a really good fishing guide will give people a reason to care about why they want to make sure that there's no dam on the river or, or no pebble mine if you're in Alaska.
1: Coming up, Brian and I dive into guide ethics. Again, thank you to Hatch Reels for their support and fantastic quality gear. The tight tolerance between frame and spool means no more tangling with skinny running line that gets trapped and reversed i've lost some big fish that way and hatch simply removes the constant checking and worrying after all there are more important things to be paying attention to when on the water visit hatch at www.hatchoutdoors.com and be prepared to make one of the best fishing investments you've made so
3: far so economics aside why is the steelhead fishery proposed to be the best it's been in 10 years
2: yeah okay so sure you know every, every every story's got a bright side and this year, the tide test fishery, which you know essentially is is consistent netting that takes place down close to tide water on the Skeena, on the, the north side of the river, basically gives some run size estimate. And it's it's geared towards sockeye, understanding you know how many sockeye are coming into the river, but. But all fish species that are collected are are accounted for. And you can find this information online. This year's Ta'i test fishery indicates that the steelhead return is the highest in their recorded history. So that's like 64, 65 years of doing this up to now. So all this basically means is that up to now, you know, what are we today? The 24th, 25th, something like that? Fifth today. 25th. Up till now, more steelhead have ended up in that Ta'i net than over the same period in the previous 64 years or however many it is. I think it's it's 64. Uh, Doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be more fish. It's just what it's indicating. Now, river's in great shape. You know, maybe they're just lucky. You know, our, our experience fishing this year would suggest that there's more fish than normal by, you know, a considerable margin. Why is this? could be a variety of things and i think it probably has a lot to do with the fact that due to the initial dismal sockeye estimates that commercial fisheries were heavily scaled back or non-existent and you know some would if you read bob hooten's book you probably come to the conclusion that those sockeye nets uh, also collect some steelhead regardless of whether they're in canadian or u.s waters and so perhaps that's why we have more steelhead um if you pay attention to Pacific Decadal Oscillation, you'll notice that this whole warm water blob thing is behind us for a while, and the ocean's cooled ever so slightly, and that tends to do good things for the fish that we love, and that could be a part of it as well. But overall, if you, if you look at steelhead numbers over over the last 25 years, they've been pretty consistent. There's a couple of standout years there, and there's a couple of years that were lower, but you know that line is pretty good. And from one year to the next, Throughout the entire Skeena system, you're going to end up with somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 steelhead returning. Uh, Close to half of those fish are destined for the Bulkley Maurice. I would say that probably more than half of the anglers destined to Skeena country end up on the Bulkley. But, I mean, that's great. Bulkley's got good access. The road's right there. There's tons of water. So when you think about that, spread that over 12 months, and then you look at, you know, what exists south of the border for run size. You know, how many fish do they have on a river like the Trinity or the Columbia system? Everyone thinks you know Skeen is full of fish, but in reality, this whole river system has less fish than you know one river in Oregon, right? I, I got that from Hooten, but it's it really is the truth that people who come up here sometimes come with this idea that you know BC is full of fish, and, and the reality is we got some great fish, we got some fantastic water, and our population sparse enough that there's lots of both to go around. I think you know. So this year, I did. I, I have spent. You know, through through my position with Kermode Tourism, which is the, the 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 tourism organization here in Terrace, we've been fairly involved with you know trying to get the word out about preserving access to our fishery and understanding mm. where the exploitation lies. Understanding that from one fishery to the next, the the catch and release you know fly fishing that takes place in the Skeena. Has a very low impact compared to other fisheries, and at the same time generates the highest per dollar value. There's actually a, a paper that was recently put together by a company called Big Sky Analytics, and uh, I think it's like fifty some odd pages long. But it, it talks about the size of the industry and also, you know, more importantly, on a per fish basis, how much money is being generated for the overall economy. And I think as an angler, if you if you love fish you're always going to have this sort of thought in your head of gosh maybe i should just stop fishing if i like fish maybe it's better for me not to be you know trying to catch them but you know if you remove yourself from the the whole scene and take yourself off the river i don't think you're doing anything any favors i think it's good to have anglers who care participating and i think that you see this through you know translate keep them wet you know people tried to get keep them wet to be an actual regulation but what's happened instead is it's just become more of a movement a cultural shift an educational thing where i mean it's, it's kind of like like the smoking thing right people had no idea that it was bad to smoke in planes that they're hurting themselves right now n- now it's like we put the smokers outside so they have to stand in front of the door and then we move them from the door and then we put them across the street in like designated smoking areas and it's now it, you know it's, it's back to this idea of wow like taking fish out of the water and holding them there for like a minute and a half while you get like 30 photos is bad huh so keeping them in the water makes a lot of sense you know that is really part of a larger discussion about harm reduction okay so if you're an angler who cares about what you're doing what's the best thing you can do for the fish well number one thing you can do for the fish is catch less of them Um, still fish just catch less of them and as you're catching less of them find a way to reduce the possible harm that you're inflicting. And there's a lot of ways that someone can do this. So bait bans are are always a good topic of conversation, but there's some pretty good science that shows that if you ban bait, you're going to end up with less dead fish. So why the heck wouldn't we do that?
3: Bait is for fat kids. What did you say that time? What time? Okay, never mind. I'm not going to do it it to you.
2: I know, I know (laughs) it's okay. No, there was a, there was a, a TV show that I think I said something like that. It, it, it upset some people, but it's probably what they needed to hear. You know what bait has a place, but wild steelhead bait's kind of not the I don't think it's they go together that well. But there's other things too. It's not just bait. I think keeping fish in the water is pretty key to, to reducing mortality. I think proper hook size is really important. I think you know playing fish properly is really important. And you know what one thing that's become very clear to me now And when I started guiding for steelhead uh, up here, it was for Mike and Denise Maxwell. Uh,
3: Yeah, I was going to ask you.
2: Back then, we didn't use nets. We hand-tailed everything. And in fact, Mike was pretty adamant that it was important that we get the clients to tail their own fish because we're not always going to be there for them, so they need to learn how to do this. The problem with that is getting people to hand-tail their own fish sometimes can go pretty sideways. So now we use a net. And the cool thing with the net is you don't have the fish flopping around on the rocks. You can reduce fight times. If someone wants to get a photo, preferably kind of in the water, you know, the net helps keep them there. So a nice rubber mesh net or soft mesh net, I think, is a, is a really good thing. I'm not suggesting they need to make it a law, but I just think it'd be really good if everybody used one and there'd be less dead fish. Not that the river really gets, you know, if if we were killing fish left, right, and center, they'd be, you'd, you'd see them in the runs. I think there's always going to be an associated level of mortality, but I think that any type of conversation towards harm reduction is a good one. And, you know, once again, you know, sure, banning bait, potentially banning, you know, fishing from boats because that takes away sanctuary for the fish. Also this idea of using appropriate size tackle, right, like hook size. And this, you know, this summer, the whole Chinook closure has been a, a hot topic in Terrace. And, you know, everybody's got an opinion. And what's really neat is, especially when we talk to politicians, which I've done a fair amount of this year, which is kind of interesting. They're people too. They tend to value your opinion on the same level as Joe the barber, or whatever, right? It doesn't matter. It's just, and they say things like, I heard that the problem with catch and release is that if the hook is upturned, it goes in the fish's brain and then the fish dies. Okay. Well, that is possible, but if we use a small enough hook, it can't reach the brain. So this is how we solve that problem. But you're right. This is why people should use appropriate sized hooks. So it's definitely an education thing. And I guess if there was one good thing about having a, a summer like this one where you know there was no Chinook fishing is it gets people talking. The other thing that you know, you'll hear a lot of, oh, if we just close all fishing for four years, the fish will magically come back which sounds good but in reality isn't isn't going to happen.
3: Do they mean close fishing on the river or like stop netting in the ocean?
2: In in that particular one and and you mean like I said everybody in Terrace loves to fish. So what you'll hear a lot of is is more of a personal comment of hey, I'm totally happy to give up fishing for four or five years because that will help bring the fish back, right? And and yeah. it you know it very well may, but I also believe that There's ways that you can keep your access to the river and get your impact so low that it's not having a negative effect on the overall fish population. How many fish are you catching to cause this destruction of the run on your own? And, you know, in reality, you you know, I I hate I hate to say this because it, it it sounds like discouraging for anyone thinking to fish for Chinook with a fly. But it really is like fish hard for three days and you'll probably get one. You know, so for some people, they, they fish much longer than that to get one. It's not an easy thing to do.
3: Are your thoughts the same on all of this with steelhead as well?
2: Steelhead's a little easier access. I mean, numbers overall are pretty similar, but they're much closer to shore. And I, I think that if, if, if you look at how many people have caught steelhead on a fly versus how many people have caught fresh Chinook on a the fly, there's way less people have caught the Chinook on a fly. And there's way less people doing it, too.
3: Yeah, and do you think that's just because they're further out, the water's heavier?
2: Yeah, further out, water's heavier. Is the water just
3: a lot higher then as well, so the access isn't as easy?
2: water's a little bit higher. I mean, you do need to probably, I would say, to be consistently in front of fish, you need to be able to throw 80, 90 feet. And if you can throw a little further, that's helpful. But there's lots of spots where someone can get away with a shorter cast, whereas on the Skeena, if you can flip out your head, you're in the game for steelhead
3: how are you managing this as a lodge owner then right now
2: you mean the, the Chinook closure yeah well it's... the skiing is not the only game in town we we fished the kidemout a lot in june and the kidemout was it was actually catch and release for a large portion of the year this year and was really pleasant there was hardly anybody fishing fishing was still pretty good you know and now we've
3: is it because it's a hatchery
2: through the sfab process the the conversation that you would hear a lot is oh well the kidemout's a hatchery river so you know we should keep it open anyways but I also think that if if you have a situation where you're you're closing you know a large amount of water, i.e. the Skeena, and you still have people that want to go fishing, I think it does make sense to to give them some place to fish. And because the run size for the Kitimat was was in the range of where they wanted it to be, and there weren't the same concerns there with you know the the sockeye and the FSC fishing, that you know it was it was relatively easy to keep the, the Kitimat open, and, and certainly. The fact that it is a hatchery river was part of that conversation.
3: Do you think that there are way more fish per person here, therefore making it more of a quality experience?
2: Well, I don't think um, numbers of fish is what dictates quality experience. I think it, it has probably more to do with space to angle. And the nature of the Skeena fishery where fish are moving through means that you don't necessarily need to cover as much water in a day to find a fish and let's say like if you're steelheading the new reality and it's a good, I think it's a good benchmark is, you know, one encounter per day. That's what your goal should be. There's a huge difference between zero and, and one and less of a difference between one and two and two and three. And, and that's really, you know, another part of harm reduction, as I mentioned before, this idea of catching less. And there are parts of this world, there's parts of this country where we have catch and release limits. You know, you're only allowed to hook and release two or three fish or whatever the number is. But, you know regulations, especially ones that are tough to enforce, especially when you don't have the resources to fill the river with river police. It just makes way more sense to focus on education and a cultural shift. And I think the the cool thing is this: if you work really hard, like I'll use the Squamish as an example. Not a lot of fish in the Squamish. Hard, to, big water. Hard to fish. Hard to figure out when to fish. You put a lot of effort in. Some people don't catch a fish every year. Some people catch two or three in a day. But you know, whatever it is, you put a lot of effort in. And if you go five days without a bite and then you catch a really good quality fish, like there is there, that becomes such a such an experience that you have an emotional reaction. You really do. And it's a little different if you like rock up and, you know, you catch four or five in a day and then you're like, oh, I caught four or five in a day. So here here's something that I, I often tell to you know, other people who are in the same business, whether they're lodge owners or guides, if you can convince your clientele that, one fish a day is like, that. that's like what you want. That's an experience that's relatively easy to repeat. As soon as you like find this run that's full of fish and your clients catch five or seven, then all of a sudden the bar has been lifted. And it's, it's really tough then to go back to this idea of, oh, I hooked one and it was off 30 seconds later. What a wonderful day. How was your day? Oh, we only hooked two? you know <laughs> yeah. so th- I think this is a good lesson for those lodges further upriver, where you know a fishery like the Bulkley where once the fish are there, they're not leaving, and especially if someone's there in October.
3: I'm super sorry to interrupt you, and I'm sorry to throw okay. anyone under the bus, but one of the guys caught twenty fish in one day, and I saw him another day and was like, "How was your day? Oh, I just caught seven and I'm going, I would have killed for one. all
2: right, confession time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you did use to guide there <laughs> I
2: did I did and and I I, I'm not going to say the name of the lodge I worked at because um, because of the next part of this, but I did work at another lodge after after Maxwell's, and I was introduced to fishing egg patterns. They weren't beads; that's, we actually tied mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Um, fishing egg patterns on <laughs> on pink salmon reds, and
3: that's at, what these guys were doing. Yeah, yeah, by yeah, the and, way, and yeah. at
2: one point, uh, you know, I think I had two clients and landed over 20 fish, something like that. But that's not real steelheading, and and you know
3: but why are the lodges even and i love all of these lodges i love all the all of the owners of all these lodges have been there for me they've been great so i'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus but what is the mentality behind that because all they're doing is shooting themselves in the foot aren't they
2: they totally are and the dirty thing with that pink thing is the longer you stay in one spot the better the fishing gets because as the anglers walk up and down they're kicking out pink salmon eggs. Now, and please, I just want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that anyone from lodges is purposely doing this, but if you're standing in pink salmon reds fishing an egg or a bead or whatever the heck it is you're doing with and if God, if gosh, you have bobber on there or something, that's even worse. But, you know, essentially you're kind of, whether you're trying to or not, you're kind of chumming. And
3: it's like the San Juan shuffle with is, eggs.
2: Yeah. And I'm not suggesting anyone's purposely doing this. I think it's an educational thing. I think people figure it out over time. It's kind of like, just cause you know, you can, doesn't mean you should, but the problem is the clients. So once the clients have been exposed to that, I mean, maybe they're like trout fishermen from Utah or somewhere and. And they're like, oh, I steal head. This is what it's all about. We go up there when the pinks are there and we fish these egg patterns underneath these little bobbers and we get these fish, right? But look, hey, there's a lot of really great lodges up there. I'm not not trying to suggest that anybody is, is doing something against the whole spirit of conservation. I think that it's just it's a general shift with clients towards this idea of being happy with less. And the thing that I really love about being on the lower skeena is it really is about fish quality versus quantity and so it's but really is that because you
3: don't have a choice
2: it's it's kind of because we don't have a choice you're right so we, we don't have a situation where every day we go to a run and there's 10 fish sitting there we can hook two of them or three of them right we have a situation where the fish are coming by and if they're there we get them and they're, they're not amazing com- <laughs> and if they're not coming by then you're going to get one but when you do hook up you know, they haven't been caught before. You're getting them in really, really shallow water in a big, wide piece of river. Yeah, there's a lot of good things going on there. But mentally, it's challenging because, A, the size of the river, and, B, the fact that there's not always a fish in front of you. So, you know, I think moving forward for anybody who who fancies themselves to be a conservation-minded steelheader, the first thing you need to look at is your own impact, and, and, and that is, hey, how many fish am I catching and what do I think my catch and release mortality rate is? Throw it out there and then just kind of be like, okay, this is how many fish I'm killing. Am I okay with this? And if that number is too high, then you have to find ways to make it lower. And you could do that a variety of ways. You could switch to more difficult ways of fishing. You could try and fish spots that you haven't fished before. That's really fun. You could fish less, spend more time watching your friends fish. But Go grouse hunting. But there's, I'm not suggesting anyone remove themselves from the river environment I'm just suggesting that people have a good hard look at what their own exploitation is, because when we have periods of low abundance and everyone starts, you know, pointing fingers at each other, thinking about, okay, well, that's what so and so is doing. You know, the first thing you need to do is look at, you know, what your own impact is. And right now, myself, I, I feel pretty good because we don't I, we don't catch a lot of fish. We catch some really good ones, but. But you know we don't catch fifteen or twenty in a day.
3: What are they saying the mortality is these days?
2: Well, there's you know there was a, a good study that was just done in the Balkley. I think they came up with four point something or five. But what has become very clear is taking fish out of the water for more than ten seconds. Is really, really bad. I think, you know, it's not really a surprise for any of us that we're always conscious of, you know, with if we're going to hoist a fish for a picture to make sure that the water was still dripping off of it, okay, there's your photo, put it back in, let it go. I don't think that's really the target of keep them wet. I think keep them wet is really more for the person who's like laying the fish on the rocks, trying to get the photo next to their rod or trying to figure out if it's something they can keep or not. And this idea of, okay, well, we need to make this an actual regulation isn't necessarily a bad one because the people are essentially snitching on themselves with their own photo when they brag online. But at the same time, too, I don't think an actual regulation is necessary because we have this really neat cultural shift that's happening over the last, I'll say, five years of, you know, you just, you don't really see a lot of those like grip and grin photos or I mean, I remember Sims had this awful picture in one of their catalogs of the person with the fish above their head. People don't do that anymore. Now, you know, the fish half in the water, half out the water, that's a cool photo. I think the best fishing photography is kind of like if the angler didn't know that the photo was being taken, right? And I have to be careful because I've been doing this a relatively long time. And, you know, here I am being very opinionated about some of the stuff and there's folks that are just getting into it and maybe they're catching their first steelhead and it's so important for them to get this photo but i think over time the importance of having photographic evidence to document all of your catches diminishes and you just become more happy with being out there it sounds cliche but it really is true
3: yeah and i think that happens with experience but let's go back to what you're saying about cultural shift it's one thing to make it cool to keep a a fish wet obviously because comments on social media if people are going to post pictures hoisted up they're going to expect a certain amount of backlash and it's going to encourage them to maybe not do it next time or certainly not post those pictures next time but how do you do the same sort of cultural shift convincing people or encouraging people to limit their catch how do you do that cultural shift
2: that that's a great question um I think you have to be really careful with that one, not to be like, okay, look, I've caught a bunch of steelhead over the last twenty five years. How dare you catch more than one a day, right? But I think that what we at least what we try and do at the lodge, and it's not like it's like an official thing. I just think it's part of our culture here. Is you know we celebrate the encounters. Someone comes in and they hooked two or three fish. That they get the exact same reaction as the person who came in and hooked one. Right or had a great bite that they want to talk about. It's all about the encounters, fish pictures versus the fish you hooked and took a bunch of line and then jumped three times and came off. That the, the second one's a better story, right? The fish that got away versus look here's here's another picture of a ten pound fish. They're pretty, but but yeah, I think it's it's all about what could have been, right? And you know, fish stories are an inherent part of steelheading, and you know, it's that camaraderie of kind of communal suffering when, when, you know, the river's not in great shape or there's not a lot of fish around or the weather's bad. That's a good one, right? When the weather's bad, it's so nice to come back to the lodge and hang out. Right. And if you came back and everyone else is like, you know, talking about the easy fishing they had all day and, and you can't dig a fish up to save your life that's not going to make anyone feel good. So it is kind of nice to come back and hear that everyone else's experience has been similar to yours, that fishing's just tough right now. It's not anything that you did. And if you're so lucky, and I'd rather be lucky than good, if you're so lucky to have had an encounter during a period when fishing is generally perceived as being challenging and other people's experience go in line with that, man, that's a good feeling, right? You feel very lucky that you, uh, you were able to encounter a fish. And it's, it's funny because in, in this business, When someone goes out on the first day and has a great day of fishing, we just kind of face palm and go, oh no. But it's, you watch someone, you know, fish hard for two or three days and it's not happening for them and then they have a great day close to the end of their trip. That's like a fish at the end of a trip is worth like five times as much as a fish at the beginning of a trip.
3: Mm -hmm, It's true. So, how do the lodges upriver handle it then? Uh, If they are, so if if you were to go back to Guide in the balkley Mm -hmm. knowing what you know today. Yes. And you've got a client eggs aside you know he's fishing I don't know black leech or something similar and he catches two fish by 10 o'clock three fish by 10 o'clock how do you as a guide handle that moving forward
2: great and you know That's that's a good question so the big thing I think when it comes to being a good citizen on the river is rotational angling so as a guide, most guides, if not all guides, will try and put their clients in what they believe is the best possible position. And that means going to a particular run at a particular time. Now, if you go to that run and you do one pass through and you hook a couple fish, you probably would feel a good level of confidence that you could have a cup of coffee, hop back in at the head and go right back through again and have a similar result. And you're probably right. And if you do that, then every other person driving by goes, oh, look, there's that April Vokey guy just hanging out in this run all day long. She must really be getting him. And then everybody wants to go there.
3: Or she just lives there and is too lazy to go anywhere else, for the record, because <laughs> she has chores and a baby. <laughs> yeah.
2: And then, th- then back at the lodge, oh, where'd you catch it? Oh, we got him in whatever, like Eagle Run or whatever. And then everybody wants to fish Eagle Run. So it's really not a good move for the guide to keep cycling people through the same productive piece of water. So the answer to your question is this. If you go through a run, and you catch a couple fish, you've already made your day. The right move, if you're an experienced guide, is to get in the boat and go somewhere different. And as a guide, and I hope guides out there are listening, this is a great opportunity for you to go and try that run that you don't normally take clients to because you haven't caught a bunch of fish in, and now maybe you can catch some fish in there, and then you'll have confidence to put that into your regular routine. But unfortunately, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to not want to cycle people through again. And then, gosh, if they hit something the second pass, now what are you going to do? Well, let's have lunch. Should we go through again? Man, now that's not good guiding anymore. So rotational angling is a good way to do it. Keep people moving. Try different water. And that way, other people won't know that you're actually hitting fish in that run if you keep it moving.
3: What if the client's the one who's really pushing that they want to go back through the run again?
2: If you're a guide and the client is running the show, then you're not doing it right. Look, Take life jackets as an example. All of our guests know that our boats don't leave until life jackets are done up and away they go. Um, I've talked to other guides and say, you know, "How come you don't put life jackets?" on your clothes? "Oh, they didn't want to wear them." Okay, <laughs> did you ask them? Did you tell them? Because you're the boss. This is your job, right? And I think that the clients will try and run the show if you show them that weakness. If you're like, "Man, fishing is tough. I don't know where we should fish. Oh, we should go here." Or, Here, give me that fly. You know, they're hiring you. Don't make yourself redundant here. Like, you're running the show. Tell them what's up. And definitely that means putting life jackets on. Definitely that means choosing where people fish, how they fish, the pace at which they fish, the flies they're using. You're the expert. That's what you're supposed to be doing.
3: Um, Have you found that you're more protective over the fishery now that you're dead?
2: I think I I care less about fishing in the sense that, you know, my rods are rigged up, my waders are hanging there. I can go any time. But, you know, when you prioritize things. I, there's stuff I'd way rather be doing. Kids are little and it's a lot of fun. Eventually we'll go fishing, but right now I, I definitely spend more time chasing them around than, than actually fishing. And I'm, okay, and I'm, totally, <laughs> I'm to- <laughs> totally okay with it.
3: No, but I mean, do you find yourself more protective over... Just having it be there for them when they grow up.
2: Oh, I I don't think it's going anywhere. I'm not a doom and gloom person. Um, Thank
3: God, because I feel like that's all I've had on the show lately. No, no.
2: Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Steelhead, if you want to talk Steelhead, as I said before, Steelhead returns to the Skeena have been pretty much on the level. You know, if Bob Hooten was here, he'd probably be disagreeing with me. But it's good to have people who, you know, keep that conversation going, especially someone like Bob who's got heaps of knowledge. But, you know... Bob's concerns are, I think, very valid. There's, there's more of us out there. We're more on top of the fish. You got Google earth, you know, if you want to be a a fishing superstar, you know, the learning curve can be pretty quick. Whereas in the old days, you know, you you, you needed to to put your time in. Now it's like, you just need Google, right? And you know, the equipment we have, the lines we have, you know, everyone's ability to cast when, when, when I got into the spay thing, man, everybody sucked at casting, so it was easy to it was easy to make a living as a casting instructor. Now, you know, the equipment's so good and YouTube's so good that, you know, people don't it's not that they don't need casting instructors, but the people that are really into their casting, they tend to still come for lessons a lot and the people are at the very beginning of their casting career, but If someone's been spay casting for like two weeks, they're pretty darn competent at this point, especially if they've had some good tuition from someone who knows what they're doing, which is great because, you know, I think one of the the sort of stigmas of fly fishing was, oh, it's so difficult. You're going to hook your ear. And, you know, we get a lot of folks who, we get a lot of beginners. We really do. We get a lot of folks who come here, like family trips. We love couples, we love families, and they've never spay cast before. Oh, this is going to be so hard. I tried single-handing once and it was windy. You teach them how to spay cast, 15 minutes later, they're... Fishing on their own, everything's cool. So, you know, obviously improvements to the equipment make skagit heads, make it easy for everybody. But the, the important thing is, you know, it really is an activity that everybody can do. And as a conservation measure, if we're trying to find ways to still participate in fisheries, but at the same time kill less fish by catching less fish, you know, there is a pretty good conversation one can have about you know, fly fishing. Now, I don't think we need to make it a regulation. I think it's just something that naturally happens as people try and find ways to essentially limit their own impact and catch less fish. And you see it a lot here in Terrace, where you know guys have gone through the, the back bouncing thing. They've been really good bar fishermen, good float fishermen. Still do a little bit of that, but but then they pick up spay casting, and it's something new. And every day they go out there, they feel they're improving, and it's more challenging. So the fact that it's more challenging makes it more rewarding to them and you know, all all of a sudden they find themselves spending more time trying to fly fish.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please tune in next week as I sit down with Ed Rice. Thank you for listening.